So, good morning and welcome to our morning service at Crescent Church. Uh, our speaker this morning is Professor Danny Crooks, who's going to be continuing our series in 1 John, and his topic is Testing the Spirits. Thanks for coming along this morning. Um, if this is your first time uh, for a while, we'll give you a special welcome. We're in probably about two-thirds of the way uh, through our series on 1 John, and this morning we have come to... Uh, chapter 4, and we're, our passage this morning is the first six verses of chapter 4. Let me just read the first six verses. Um, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is, ready, is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now, because we've only six verses to cover this morning, it's tempting just to take a little time uh, to stand back and to look at where our passage fits into the overall message of 1 John. So the purpose of 1 John, he states it as one of his main purposes towards the end of his letter. And he says in chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, it's interesting to compare uh, this, this purpose with the purposes, purpose of his earlier gospel, the Gospel of John. And near the end of his gospel, John states why he is writing it in chapter 20. These are written, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John's gospel was written so that we would come to know how we can have eternal life. So how to have eternal life. But the letter, first letter was written so that you would know that you have it. So if you believe in Christ, this gospel says you will have eternal life. But if you're not sure whether or not you have it, well, that's why his letter was written. The message that it is possible for humans to have eternal life, for us to have the very life of God himself, it's so radical that sometimes believers can doubt if they have the real thing. So what evidence should we look for if we, if we have believed in Jesus? <clears throat> what evidence should we look for if we want to be sure that we have eternal life? Well, John has based his letter on three things which were revealed or were manifested 
and which John himself personally saw and heard as he worked with, walked with Jesus. So in First John, there are five chapters, and John highlights three things that were uniquely revealed in Jesus. In the first two chapters, we've already seen that uh, the life of God was revealed, that Jesus was the embodiment of the life of God, but more than that, so that Jesus came so that we could have that same life of God in us. So the life of God was revealed in Christ and also in us. Then, starting at chapter 3 and going up to the end of our passage this morning, there's something else is revealed. And in this section, John talks a lot about uh, children of God. And I'm going to uh, describe what it was revealed, uh, perhaps rather controversially, as the DNA of God. Now, uh, don't panic, but John does say in this section, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. Now, you might think my description of God's DNA, spiritual DNA, is a bit uh, radical. You'll search the scriptures and you'll never find any reference to DNA. But actually, it's more literal than you might think. As I mentioned, John talks about the seed, God's seed remains in them. Now, when a child is born, what does it share from its parents which remains in them all their life? Well, the child shares and inherits their parents' DNA. Now, in Bible times, they didn't use the term DNA, but they used the term seed to convey the same concept. A part of their parents which remains in them and abides in them for all their life. So this is more than just having fellowship with God, which is what the life of God enables us to have. But in this middle section, John says, you're actually children of God. You share God's DNA, and that produces family likeness. And in the third section of his letter, as we will see in times, uh, in weeks to come, uh, the love of God is revealed. And John will go into greater detail on how God's love can be revealed in our lives. Now, one interesting feature of the way John has structured his letter is at the end of each of those three sections, he slips in a little warning, a warning that there are counterfeits of what God offers in the gospel. For example, at the end of the first section, he talks about false Christs or antichrists. Even now, many antichrists have come, he says. Antichrists are false Christs, counterfeit Christs, people who claim to offer the same as what Jesus brought, but cannot deliver. And teachings, these are teachings which present a false picture of Christ. At the end of the second section, well, we read quite a lot about the spirit, the spirit, John says, of Antichrist. And false spirits are those which are in opposition to the spirit of truth. That's the Holy Spirit. So, a warning, first of all, against false Christs, then against false spirits, imitations of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the very last sentence in his, uh, his letter is a warning 
against false gods. He says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So we see that there are always dangerous teachings which try to present a false and deceitful version of each of the three persons of the Trinity. Now, with that in mind, you can see that our short passage this morning, uh, just those first six verses, uh, concentrates on John's warning against a false understanding of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you look at our passage, uh, if we just look at it again, I want to draw your attention to a small number of ideas which are repeated several times by John. So, in this uh, view of our passage, I've highlighted uh, references to the Spirit and to spirits. There are eight references to, to that in just these six verses. John talks about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Antichrist, the Spirit of truth, and the Spirit of error. And we're told then to test the spirits. So what are these different spirits? We're not talking about ghosts or little devils around the place. John says that they reveal themselves by spreading ideas and by teaching. He says in this context, many false prophets have gone out into the world. You may have heard the phrase, the spirit of the age. Now, whatever that is, where does it come from? Who promotes it? Who spreads that idea? And you can get false prophets inside the church and outside the church. You can get religious false prophets. You can get secular false prophets. John says is that it's important and vital that we test each spirit, each popular idea that is transmitted to us. It might be from the secular world. It might be a new interpretation of scripture or a popular new movement in Christendom. It's important that we analyze where does this teaching come from? Is it from God or is it from somewhere else? And that brings us to two more ideas that John highlights through repetition. There's another word that has occurred very frequently, six times in fact, in this section. It's the phrase, the world. And we're not talking the geographical world, but the social world. And in particular, he talks about people who speak from the world. Now, compare that idea of the world and teaching that comes from the world with uh, another uh, repeated phrase, which is from God. Again, six times uh, he speaks about people from God or not from God. And if we put these two thoughts together, we can see what John is telling us to detect. To detect whether or not some new idea, some new movement, social movement, or in the church, or some new teaching, is it from God or is it from the world? And how do we tell whether a new idea is from God or whether it's a belief from this world inspired by a false spirit? That's a good question. John tells us how God communicates his message to us, and this is one way we can trace the source of a new idea. In verse 6, he says, We are from God, referring to himself and the other apostles. Whoever knows God listens to us. And when John says we, as I say, he's referring 
to himself and the other apostles. Those apostles were given divine authority by the Lord Jesus to speak and to write the word of God. The New Testament is God's authoritative word on Christ. The scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And the proper teaching of the scriptures, both New Testament and Old Testament, that is the only reliable and authoritative channel through which God communicates his truth to us today. So that's how we can tell if something is from God. Now, how do we tell if something is from the world? And this is a more complicated question. How does the world communicate its message? Well, I said the question was complicated. The question itself is simple, but the answer is a little more complex. So how do popular ideas spread through society in our world today? Who tries to persuade us to accept new beliefs? Let me give you a list of what I think are probably the most influential sources uh, right across the world telling us what we should believe. And let me say, first of all, when I mention these, I'm not going to criticize these uh, channels of communication, but we do just need to be aware of them and how they can sometimes be used. The first uh, channel, which I, I've called, if you like, the public media, which might include TV, news, newspapers, analysis, and debates, are all very valuable ways of informing us of how governments are thinking of how the government, where the government wants us to move as a country. <laughs> now, we in the UK are more fortunate than many countries <clears throat> uh, because our public media is both free on the one hand but yet regulated on the other. It's free to criticize or to promote certain ideas and beliefs, but it is supposed to be truthful and fair. And the BBC in particular is required to be balanced and unbiased. And that's a very good thing, and we should be grateful for that. So that's one channel through which we receive, if you like, new ideas, ideas that we are supposed to believe. Now, the next channel is what we might call social media. Now, this is unregulated, but it is very influential. And social media is almost the opposite of public media. Things like Facebook, Twitter, or X as it now is, YouTube, and other platforms are used by millions of people. And it's much less regulated. You can't believe what you read. It's not necessarily all wrong, but you just can't be sure. It doesn't have to be balanced. And there is much good and much interesting material available on social media. But as a source of promoting new ideas, you have to be very careful and sometimes very skeptical about believing what you hear and what you read on social media. The third channel that I'm just highlighting is the entertainment industry and the music industry. These sometimes promote popular ideologies. Now, the influence of the film industry is immense. And again, I'm not saying it's bad. There's much really good stuff uh, that you can watch. But we do need to be aware that the film and the music industries are increasingly being used to promote popular ideologies, particularly to young people. Now, I won't mention any in particular, 
but I'll leave you to decide uh, which ones might be particularly relevant in promoting ideologies. So the entertainment industry and musical industry is very effective. It's a very effective way of preaching, if you like, and getting people to believe in the new spirit of the age. Now, just to be fair, I've highlighted universities and education. And I've mentioned particularly in the arts and humanities. So in subjects like science and engineering and medicine, uh, it is usually easier to find out if an idea is true or false. You can do experiments, you can test things, you can do measurements and calculations. But arts and humanities have to tackle more complex subjects where it's more difficult to nail down the truth. And if someone has a different opinion, it can be very difficult to disprove their belief. Now, most of the issues in arts and humanities are extremely helpful and uncontroversial. But the university sector has been a major driving force behind the promotion of more extreme ideologies such as critical race theory and extreme ideas in gender studies. And finally, I should mention that another source of ideas is popular televangelists and faith healers, just a, an umbrella phrase, to show that these things come from Christian sources as well. And in Christian circles with satellite and cable TV and online broadcasting of services, some large churches and church networks have become very influential in promoting their own particular brand of ministry and of music. And slick professional presentation and broadcasting can make rather mundane content appear exciting and attractive. Again, there are many uh, excellent online sources of good Bible teaching, and I'm not knocking the medium as such, but you do have to be careful to examine what you're being asked to believe. Now, why I've chosen that is that there's th those five is that there's one thing which all these communication outlets have in common, in that each channel tries to appeal to the mass market, to appeal to as many people as possible. The truth is often unpopular and uncomfortable, and sometimes makes people uncomfortable. So it's not going to be acceptable to the mass market. And the message promoted by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, does not appeal to the mass market. As John says in verse 6, Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So if a new idea or a belief becomes popular across the globe, even among Christians, I don't mean to sound cynical, but the chances are that it is not from God. It's likely to be from the world. <clears throat> now, let me finish, uh, and don't get too excited about that, but let me finish by focusing specifically on teaching which is delivered in a church context. So not so much secular thoughts, but religious and even so-called Christian ideas. And we'll ask the question, how can we recognize if a new movement among churches in Christendom is from God? We've, the church has been subject to many new movements that have swept through churches. Some of you may not be old enough to remember the Toronto Blessing or uh, movements like that. And we've been encouraged 
to take these on board, adapt the way we operate as a church. We've been criticized as a church here even uh, for resisting the Holy Spirit because we haven't taken such ideas on board. <clears throat> but how can we recognize if a new movement through churches is from the Spirit of God? John gives us, uh, John is going to give us two tests. The first is this, what does the movement teach us about Christ? He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. What does it mean that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Why is that so critical? Well, and how is it relevant to being the child of God? Well, what John is saying here is that to recognize that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Remember that in this second section, John is talking about how the DNA of God has been revealed in Jesus and in us. In other words, he is saying that Jesus was not only God, but that his very nature was encoded in his spiritual DNA as well, not so much his physical DNA, but his spiritual DNA. In other words, it is possible to have the character, the nature of God revealed in a human being. That's who Jesus was. And the combination of the life and nature of God in human flesh is unique to Christianity. Now, in New Testament times, <clears throat> there were Greek philosophers who believed that our spiritual bodies were bad and they were limiting. The important thing was the spirit. And who, what you did with your body didn't really matter. The important thing was your spiritual nature and your spirit. And that, of course, left the door open to all sorts of immoral behavior because they said your, uh, your body doesn't matter. What you do with your body doesn't matter. They said the two, the spirit and the body, can't be combined. That who you are in your spirit is different from who you are in your body. In our modern world today, the common belief is almost the opposite of that. We're told that the physical world is all there is. There is no such thing as spiritual life. Your body and who you are as a person is all that matters. Now, both of these ideas are incompatible with the message that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and incompatible with the message that God's character and nature can be revealed in our bodies. And he has made it possible for us today to be children of God, to be born of God, to have God's spiritual DNA, making us a new person with a new father. Now, if in New Testament times you accepted the spirit of the age in the Greek world, or if today you accept the purely materialistic spirit of the age, which we're often taught, then you have no concept of being a child of God. You're denying a core principle of the gospel which Jesus manifested. Now, 
the second principle which John gives us about recognizing whether something comes from the Spirit of God, I'm going to cheat a little, and I'm going to go back to his gospel, where the Lord Jesus actually gave us a test to apply <coughs> to see whether or not something comes from the Holy Spirit. In the upper room ministry, uh, the Lord Jesus speaks about the Spirit of, of truth. And he says this, he shall not speak of himself, he shall glorify me. Now, this becomes relevant uh, when, if you maybe go to a church or watch online a church where the message that you hear is all about the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, how we can experience the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you're watching a service like that, then you should be rather cautious. Now, let me give you an illustration. Northern Ireland has been privileged in recent years to have had visits from the United States of America president. We had President Clinton, we had President Obama, and more recently, President Biden. And they came to Northern Ireland to speak to the people of Northern Ireland. Now, imagine at the, the keynote address where the president is come to address the people of Northern Ireland. And the president is introduced by the chief local dignitary of Northern Ireland, whoever that might be. I'm not quite sure who that would be at the moment. But the local dignitary, uh, in introducing what's going to come, the climax of his speech goes something like this. Above all else, he says to the people of Northern Ireland, I would like to express my, our immense gratitude to the ambassador of the United States. The ambassador has worked day and night for months to arrange this visit. He's largely responsible for the event we have today. He's a most gifted and helpful person. We don't want his work to be overlooked. So put your hands together and let's hear it for the United States ambassador. And now I'd like to invite the president to come and address us. How do you think that introduction would go down? Either like a lead balloon or like a bombshell. The president would no doubt feel insulted. But if you were the American ambassador, how would you feel at that moment? You would be grieved and embarrassed. The last thing as an ambassador you would want to hear is to, take, to draw attention away from the president. If you were the ambassador, you would be ashamed for the president to think that you were interested in getting glory for yourself. And when a church meets together, the ambition of the Holy Spirit is to be Christ's ambassador. As the Lord said, he shall not speak of himself, he shall glorify me. And if all the teaching and the praise in the church focuses on Christ, the Holy Spirit will be pleased. That is his mission. And if all the attention is, in the, is on the Holy Spirit and his work, the Holy Spirit will be grieved and will be disappointed and even embarrassed. So if you have a friend who maybe uh, likes to go to services where all the mentions are of the Holy Spirit and his work, you might suggest that your friend go to the pastor of that church or to the elders of the church 
and say, perhaps for the next year, could all our teaching just be on the person of Christ? And at the end of that year, see if the church has grown. They may lose a few members, but to be honest, uh, the church itself would not suffer because of that. But the Holy Spirit wants the church to be fed through teaching about the Lord Jesus, who he is, his character, his mission, and his work. So that's the second test that John would encourage us to apply as to whether or not a movement is from the Spirit of God. I'll leave those two tests with you as John ends this section that you might apply in your own thinking to what you listen to, what you watch, where you go, where you receive your teaching to judge whether or not it is from the Holy Spirit. So let's close in a moment's prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken. You have spoken authoritatively. You have given us the message, the gospel message, through the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is active in our world today, promoting that gospel, promoting the message of the Lord Jesus. Father, if we are believers here this morning, we thank you that the Holy Spirit teaches us too, teaches us about Christ. And we pray that we might be sensitive to the spirit of truth. Help us to discern what is truth from what is error. And if anyone here is not a believer, we pray that they would open their hearts to the message of the Lord Jesus and to become, through that, a child of God, not merely religious or good living, but a fundamental change in their being to be a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen.